0: This episode of the Savvy Painter Podcast is sponsored by Gamblin. Gamblin's promise is to deliver the right product for your work at an honest price. They're painters too, so you can count on them to put their heads, hearts, hands, and everything that they've learned into everything they do. And now you can buy hard-to-find Gamblin products and imperfect tubes, you know, the ones that get a crooked label or a dent. You can buy those factory direct. Imperfect tubes sell fast, so grab them while you can at GamblinStore.com. Oh, and yes, they do ship internationally. And they have something special for you guys, so keep listening for a special offer from Gamblin just for Savvy Painter listeners. You guys, I am super excited about this week's guest. John Sabrow is with us. As you'll hear in this episode, John and I had a lot of fun talking about his art. If John were here in Argentina, they would say he is un personaje. Loosely translated, he's a character. Super funny and very, very animated. Before we get going, though, I want to give a shout out and a big thank you to SheCCC and Delia Fine Art, who left reviews on Apple Podcast. I see you too. CCC she, 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 she says thank you. I enjoy all of the information I glean from your show. Thank you for putting it together. You are so very welcome. And Delia Fine Art also wrote a really, really sweet review. Delia says, I am such a fan. I listen to Savvy Painter while I'm painting, and I learn so much about what motivates other painters, their techniques, inspirations, and challenges. I feel like I'm not alone in a solitary pursuit. I'm getting to know your guests personally through listening to their interviews, and I continue to learn from them well after the podcast. You are my inspiration, Delia Thank you so much for taking the time to write this review, and I really hope you love this episode as much as I do. The reason these reviews are so important is because it helps other artists find the show and it helps me to know what is resonating with you. So if you would like to leave a review, just go to SavvyPainter.com forward slash review. There are links there that will take you straight to the review page. And because Apple Podcast isn't totally intuitive, I made a little video to show you how to do it. If this podcast has helped you out at all, I would really appreciate it if you would hop on over there and leave a review. Once again, SavvyPainter.com forward slash review. In this episode, John Sabrao shares some hilarious stories about how he got started in his artistic journey. So apparently John didn't take high school very seriously. He threw all his art in the trash and left. But there was a big, big surprise when he came back, and he's going to tell you all about that. John went from designing ladies' handbags to getting a swift kick in the butt by Carrie James Marshall. Yes, the Carrie James Marshall. It was a brief encounter that made a lasting impact. And have you ever wondered what the story is behind those reclaimed earth colors Gamblin is making now? John spills the beans. It's super interesting and an entertaining story. So let's just jump right into this episode. Here is Mr. John Sabrao. John, thank you so much for being on the Savvy Painter podcast and taking the time to talk with me. I'm really excited to have you on the show.
1: Well, it is a pleasure to be here.
0: Let's start off with a little bit about your background. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into this crazy artist world that we love?
1: Well, it's all classified. Okay, Um, no,
0: (laughs) I'm really far away and nobody's listening. So awesome. Okay,
1: good. So not going to be hauled back to jail. Um, so
0: yeah, how did I get into this? It's
1: really a very long convoluted evolution. And I'd like to be able to give you, uh, maybe for myself, I'd like to have some really clear points where I could be like a happened and B happened, whatever, but it's kind of just life, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I grew up in a home where art was not a thing. I didn't, know about art or artists certainly not any living artists i don't think we went i don't remember ever going to a museum or anything so i was not a, a good student i was a very <laughs> bad student i'm not sure i could be called a student during most days
0: this is the part that's classified
1: no this is the good stuff the classified stuff i really can't talk about entries just can't do, it. Can't, do it. can't do it i'll get your envelope with money later maybe we can talk about it later but for right now no no can't talk gotcha about. okay so you know i didn't have the worst uh, upbringing but it it, you It know, wasn't easy, and uh, so I spent a lot of time out of school, when I should have been in school. Mm-hmm. And one time when I was, oh, I think I was a junior or whatever, I kind of had a big hissy fit about life and whatever, and I took everything and all my artwork from the art class, which I flunked, by the way, in the thing, and I threw it in the trash can, and I just stormed out in a hissy fit of teenage years, and I skipped school for the next week. I just didn't go to school. Not that I told anybody, but I just roamed the town and whatever else. And when I come back, my teacher had pulled all my stuff out of the garbage can. And just so happens that week when I was gone, AWOL, the people from the National Congressional Art Competition, whatever, came through, and I got first prize in the state. That is wild. Yeah. And I was like what is this? I don't, I mean, I had no clue. I was so dumb and so ignorant. And I was just like, what is this? It's like, it's this thing. And your artwork gets to go to DC and you get to go to Washington, DC and meet your Senator and stuff. And I'm like, what's a Senator. (laughs) So, you know, that kind of thing. And I was like, wow. So I did this thing and I got my, I'm not going to tell you the year entries, but I got this and I got my white Don Johnson, Miami vice jacket, which I thought was the the height of, you know, coolness. Yep. Went to DC Promptly offended. 400 people, you know, it was just ridiculous. I had no idea. I was, What did you say, John? I to my senator. What? What did you say, Uh, John? Yeah, no, it's just that my senator was kind of all about certain political ideas, and I had some other certain political ideas, and I guess I thought that as a 16-year-old, it was my job to tell him what's what. So then he disappeared, and I never saw him again after the first minute or two. I'm not kidding. I know. I know. I know. I love it. There's going to be more of these stories. It, It really was... You know, I'm glad there was no social media when I was a kid. I'm just gonna say that. So here's the thing: is that she was my Pat shop By the way, was my high school art teacher, and she was like, "Whatever." I still, I still was flunking the class. I flunked the class. I flunked art because I just refused to do the work. Um, but I won that competition. Then I won this other prize and this other thing. And she's like, "You should apply to art school." And I'm like, "I can't go to college. I don't even have grades here in high school, you know." So, and I'm taking like remedial math and stuff. So, uh, she actually helped me put together a whole thing. You remember the old days, slides, uh huh, like that. And I sent it. I got a scholarship to go to Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. So is that not bonkers? Yeah. And I got to tell you, I had no idea what was waiting for me.
0: How was that to go from this kind of like rebel kid who's just like, "Screw the man, I'm not playing this game" to Pratt? Well, you get taught.
1: Just to Brooklyn, and you think you're the shit, and you get taught. So, you know, classify. But you know, I got my ass handed to me. I had the shit kicked out of me a couple of times, and you know, you learn a lot. And I. I'm really, really thankful for the friends I had there. I could only afford two years of school. Even with a scholarship, I could only afford two years of school. And I had this group of friends there, uh, Wayne Arthur Murray, who's a great artist um, and has done a lot of comic book stuff and video game stuff, um, and Roger and Shelley and all these people. They were were good. I mean, they never let me get by with anything. (laughs) They called me on everything. But I really needed that learning about New York in in the 80s, learning about how to be in the city that was really a very angry, boiling city. You just slept, so, you
0: know that, right?
1: Yeah, I know. I know. It was going to come out eventually. Someone's going to So now that I'm in my 90s, I look at things differently. You know? um, but so I, when I got there, I, I didn't know you could be an artist. I didn't know you could do art art. Uh-huh. I only thought you could do illustrations. And my goal was to make such a cool album cover for Led Zeppelin that they would get back together again. You
0: know? Brilliant! I would have been yeah. totally behind that.
1: Literally, I'm not making this up. I swear. I went through school, and it was what it was. And this guy came in our senior year to do a class, a one day class on uh, children's book illustration. And he was like, "Here's how you do it," and blah, blah, whatever. And I was like, "Oh, that's cool." So then I made a dummy of a children's book. I did some sketches and I wrote it up. And uh, when I graduated, and I was still 19, because it was only two year program, I think it was 19. I submitted it to Orchard Books. And the next day, he called me up and gave me a contract to publish a children's book.
0: So this is how you make it in the art. We're done. We are done. Mic drop. This, uh, this conversation is over. Here's what you do, you guys. First of all, throw all your artwork in the trash and then leave for a week. <laughs> um, yeah. And then just toss out a children's book. No big deal. Oh, well, you know, you, you know, each
1: one of these is actually just a massive personal failure that somehow turned out not killing me. That's all you can really say about it. But so he, I was like, wow. And he gave me like, you know, a couple grand advance so I could live and I was living in this, you know, cold water flat in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. walk up in Greenpoint, which was not Greenpoint. Now it was Greenpoint then. and Yeah. Like in the winter, you would wake up in the morning, you'd go take a leak, and your urine would splash back in your face because the toilet had frozen over during the <laughs> night. It was, you know, it was that kind of place, you know. One bathtub in the middle of the kitchen, and you had to boil the water on the stove and then put it in the tub and mix it with cold water to take a bath. It's, Should I ask what the was bathtub cheap. was doing in the kitchen? Where else are you going to put it, entry <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, New York. Shopping an apartment, man. All plumbing is in one three-foot square area, you know. Oh, god. you gosh. all your business in a right yeah. <laughs>
0: So this is before uh, Times Square got disney
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was. It was when you could get real good IDs in, in Times Square. So, so long story short is that I did this children's book and I was trying to make money any way I could. I'm mostly unemployed, mostly just, oh, running around like a madman um, with a couple of great friends and, and a great scene down there and begging my landlord every month to give me one more month without rent and giving him little paintings and then we'd bring him a bottle of sleep of it and and we'd make him drink the whole bottle and get really drunk and then he'd get really happy about it and he'd give us another month's you know reduction rent that kind of thing lots of spaghetti and so i discovered the children's book got published it's really not a very good book you can find it on amazon for one cent and and you should read the reviews they're pretty they're pretty honest and i thought i was going to be a children's book author and, and illustrator i was like yeah this is gonna be awesome and you know we sold The first printing out, and it was also bought by this Japanese company rather to produce in Japan. But all my next studies and manuscripts were rejected completely. Mm. You know, they had to always edit out a lot of nudity and a lot of cuss words and violence. Um, (laughs) The children's book author meant to be a children's book author, yeah, for real. Like you know, you know, I'm like, but the T Rex has to crush the kid, and the blood goes here, and they're like, you can't have that pesky, whatever. Anyway, it wasn't for me, so I was designing ladies' handbags at that time. I answered an ad in the village voice. Uh huh. You know, back in the day when you get up at 4 30 in the morning, you go to the bodega and you'd wait for the village voice to show up. And then when it gets off the truck, you like grab the first copy and you run home and you circle all the ads and you start calling at 7 a.m. to try to get any job, you know?
0: Oh my gosh.
1: You know, and there was this, there's this job that said, I'm not making this up. It said Sketcher. And I was like, Sketcher? Why? Indeed, I can sketch. (laughs) 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 Like, like, hey, I can sketch. (laughs) And they were like, We'll come down. So I went to Fifth Avenue and 33rd across from the um, Empire State Building, and they brought me into this conference room, and they put a piece of Xerox paper in front of me and a blue ballpoint pen, and they put a purse down, and they said, draw the purse, we'll be back. And they left the room, and I'm like, I'm drawing a purse, and they come back, and they go, you're hired. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I know. So I'm sitting there with uh, Barbara Lehman, who is now an amazing children's book illustrator, um named by I think New York Times as the master of the wordless children's book and Gwen we were these three reject people designers in a corner of this handbag company and we would you know basically design handbags and make drawings and stuff and and I had no idea what I was doing because I'd never held a handbag before I know mean, what it was funny as heck
0: it is hilarious <laughs> Like, because I'm still, I still have the image of, of uh, young John in uh, 1980, 1990, and now all of a sudden he's designing women's purses. It just seems so right and so wrong.
1: And it's the same kid, but in bad polyester pants and suspenders. So that was my pro level outfit for designing handbags. And then when all the buyers would leave and go on these trips, it would be just us three designers. You know in the room mm-hmm. and we would give ourselves our own fashion runway shows where we'd be like slinging purses and dancing <laughs> and stuff you know? having competitions of who could sling the purse the best you know and then oh my God. one day to deposit the checks across the street in the bank once in a great while to have you run these errands you know if it was late on a friday evening you know heading into shabbat and i'm looking at the teller and i'm giving her the stuff and i'm like oh you can see through to where i work over there and she goes oh yeah These crazy people over there, we watch them do these dances. (laughs) uh, Oh my god, that's great. I have to leave now. (laughs) Gotta go! Basically, I didn't know anything about handbags. I didn't care about handbags, mm-hmm. um, and the last company I was working for they were like I was sent over to Hong Kong and Taipei to visit the factories to check on quality to make sure my designs were done right. Dominican Republic, you name it. I just didn't want to be a part of that kind of abusive system because I would go there and see these factory workers earning like nothing twenty dollars a month a month to work every day you know and and I was just a kid and you know, it was really weird and everything. And I just, I was very lost. I didn't want to do handbags. Uh, children's books clearly were not my milieu. And I was pretty lost. But then the children's book was still selling. And my editor was like, let's do a couple of like, you know, bookstore visits or that kind of thing, which went terribly because it would just be me because nobody knows me. I'm a kid in suspenders. And I just sit there and like no one would come and the, you know, bookstore owners would apologize. But then, Some schools in New Jersey and other places asked me to come out and talk to their students because I was so young. They Mm -hmm. were like, oh, why don't you come and talk to our kids about how to become a children's book author? And I was like, okay. And I thought I was just going to go and be like, and then I made a dummy and I painted the picture and whatever. When I showed up, I thought it was going to be a class of like, what, 20 kids, 30 kids in a class. It was the whole school. Wow. It was gymnasium with like hundreds of kids from kindergarten to like whatever the heck they did there. I'd, I'd never been in front of that many people and I'd never given a thought. I was like, what is going on? I was like, oh my God. and so I asked the teachers, I like, do you have markers and a big pad of paper? And they said, yeah. And they brought it in because I didn't know what to do. I was literally, I can't believe that I kept my pants dry. I thought I was just going to crap my pants totally <laughs> terrible. And so I just ran around the audience, running up to kids going, what should we draw? And it'd be like an elephant. And I go draw an elephant. I'm like, does he have feet? No, he has skis. And I just, whatever the kids yelled, I just drew. Right. Uh And I made this kind of story of like their stuff. And I escaped this episode with people being generally pleased. And I left and I was like, I'm terrified. I'm I'm never leaving my apartment, you know, ever again. (laughs) And then I got this box of letters from the kids. I got like 300 letters and they were like, all filled with drawings, and like, this is great. I'm going to be a children's author when I get up. And I'm like, what? Were you there? That was scary. And so that was the turning point for me when I thought, I think maybe I can teach. Maybe I can encounter groups and talk about things. Right. Uh huh. And in looking at that, I realized I don't want to design ladies' handbags. I'm not really fit for children's level <laughs> children's level stuff, even though I'm liking kind of talking that I'm doing now. And the whole time I had been making paintings in my apartment, and I'd never shown them and never done anything with them. And when I looked at that together, I realized that there was a path. If you became an artist who had a reputation and you got a master's degree eventually, that you could actually be a professor of art at a university, which was a new concept. Mm-hmm, I was mm-hmm. like, oh. And that's kind of when I decided That's what I'm going to do. And so I I bought a car for 500 bucks, and I lived out of it for 40 days and 40 nights driving around the American West to think about what kind of artist I was going to be. And then I signed up for school, and I I went on my path in there.
0: Wild. Love the 40 days and 40 nights living out of your car, and then the the revelation new life afterwards. Yeah. (laughs) So tell me about... It's so entertaining. Like you, you really could be a children's book author if you just take out the nudity and the blood and the guts and the, and the squished children under the T-Rex. <laughs> so the paintings that you're doing now, tell us about those. So for people who've never seen, <laughs> now I'm kind of scared to ask you a question. No. <laughs> so for people who haven't seen your artwork, how would you describe it? What would you say your work is? The work I'm doing
1: now. Basically, they're square panels that are painted white, and they have round, very colorful paintings in the middle of them, taking up about 90% of the space. They are abstract. They are very flowy work, generally, although I do put gold leaf in there and other kinds of things and you know, finish layers in oil. And what they are is they are like this kind of strange, beautiful amalgamation of Space-time, microscopy, macroscopy, all melds into an environment that's reflective of where we live. So, when people look at them, they're like, it's fun. I mean, I like when I'm in a gallery and I've got some pieces up. I also really like when I'm in a gallery and I actually have a show. I'm very grateful for that. But when I have that (laughs) and people come in and they look at the work, everybody sees something completely different and very personal. Mm -hmm. And I just… You know, I didn't have that as much in my previous work, which was hyper They actually come in, they look at these circles, and I can sometimes watch them look at it, take several beats, and then they spin, find me, and walk straight across the gallery to me and go, I remember when I was a kid, and I went to Yellowstone, and that looks just like blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm, or something mm-hmm. along those lines. Mm-hmm. And... When that happened at the first show where I showed these, which freaked my dealer out crazy because I'd been painting these hyper realistic landscapes, that really told me that I was onto something that was bringing kind of dialogue with my viewers that I had wanted all along. Something where they brought themselves first emotionally and psychologically to the conversation. And then from there, we could spin it out into things where I could maybe have a more activist dialogue with them. And, and I was like, okay, this is, I'm onto something It's not just me. Mm hmm.
0: You go from an uncertain lifestyle, like you're kind of all over the place and you don't know what you want. And then you decide, boom, I'm going to, I'm going to take this pass. I'm going to get my MFA. I'm going to do all this stuff. And you do that. And then you're painting these like hyper realistic, like you're jumping from like, you're making these from the outside. It looks like you're making these gigantic leaps. And so I'm curious, like when you are in a place that's relative kind of stable ish, and then you decide, you know what, right turn. <laughs> I'm going to do something else now. Can you sort of describe what goes through your, your head and what you're thinking about? And like, do you just like go for it? Or are you kind of like, do you prepare for it? How do you go? I mean, even for some people, going from hyper-realistic to abstract is a massive leap. It is
1: a massive leap. It's terrifying. And it, it is basically, it's not a leap. It's just falling off a cliff more anything else. I think I can best tell it through like encounters with life. This is how, you know, I often don't, my move to abstraction and my move to the work that I was doing, even the the landscape work that I was doing before the abstraction, those moves, those weren't strategies. Those were just responses to life. Right. So the first time I shifted from something that was very, you know, I was in grad school in Northwestern University in the 90s. And I remember I went to a great talk by Jacob Lawrence and George Tooker, um, two really, really great painters. And they were there and I was able to meet them and talk with them afterwards. And they were talking about the lack of social activism in art. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about how it was different for them and their era and things, which I thought was and that made me start thinking. And I was like, yeah, why am I painting these these hyper realistic paintings that are really like, they're just Dutch masters. I mean, I was using my objects, but they were just Dutch masters. They, you know, and I just began to think, like, what, you know, do I have a bigger role? They were so nice. They were so chill and so erudite. And then, like, that same year when I, when I was at Northwestern, they brought in Carrie James Marshall as a visiting artist. Wow. And Carrie James Marshall came to my studio. He did studio visits, right? And he walked in and he looks around my studio and I have all these little hyper realistic, like super tight paintings of all kinds of stuff. And he goes, and he turns around and looks at me and he goes, man, I can't tell you a fucking thing about painting. <laughs> 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 and i was like what but then he started to ask me he was like but why aren't you painting irony why are you painting these things and i'm like "These are really important mr marshall this is like you know and i had all these ideas as to why these were important but they were really just self-absorbed chip on the shoulder you know immature crap but i was i was gonna defend my territory and we went at it it was so heated man carrie will not hold back carrie james marshall will he will tell you what's what right and he was like well i'm using renaissance you know perspective in this way and i'm calling this out and i'm calling this out and you're just doing this i'm like well i'm doing this and what and blah, blah, blah." and then and then someone came in and goes oh it's time for him to go to another studio and he left and that was it and it was very heated
0: uh-huh wow uh,
1: i thought to myself oh my gosh i am so dumb and i'm so unaware of like social situations. i was like this is terrible about a month later I get this call, ran out of nowhere. I get this call from this woman and she goes, I'm calling for John Sabra. And I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm John Sabra. And she's like, I want to learn how to paint. And I'm like, who are you? And she's like, well, I really want to learn how to paint really good. And my friend Carrie James Marshall said, if I want to learn how to paint really good, I had to study with you. And I was like, oh, what? And now in hindsight, I realized that that was Carrie James Marshall telling me, get ready to have mm-hmm. to engage in actual life, son. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you get a person who wants to be taught and is an older person and whatever and then you start trying to spiel your stuff and you have to meet them where they are and there, and and i made every mistake in the book and it was just I every mistake in the book when when you're teaching it was hilarious <laughs> after that i started to think about it and i was like this doesn't mean anything it's just the, the pa- my paintings lost meaning for me anymore and i realized that i wasn't being an artist of my time.
0: And what does that mean
1: to you? Well, and so taking a cue from Carrie James Marshall, right? It, it sort of means this thing where you're you're not speaking authentically and truthfully to the culture that you're in, mm-hmm. to those concerns, to everything else, right? I mean, we look at the impressionists and we think, so cute. I'm going to get my mom that calendar. It's going to be great. And the truth is is that, you know, those guys at the time, they were like, We we believe in this whole enlightenment process and our and our newfound, you know, relationship with technology and science and, and we're gonna like throw that into the so there's all these things that are buried in that. And that's being a painter of one's time, even though we just think it's cute now, right? And Kerry James Marshall is doing this thing where he's like, Well, we you know, we went past the civil rights era and we're in this era where we think everything is pretty good, but damn it's not good at all. Mm-hmm. And let me show you these gardens of Chicago and what they really mean. And so he's being a painter of his time. That doesn't mean you necessarily have to be painting social activism, but you have to be in it and aware of that and painting from that place. And mm-hmm. I was not doing it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's what made its first big shift. Right. And so I got away from these passive still life things. I began painting the figure in very contorted, confronted situations because, you know, we were heading into the second Iraq war and everything else. And so I started painting very different things that were really about the condition, right? The human condition at that time. Mm -hmm. And then what happened is I wrote this letter to the St. Louis dispatch or something, uh, because I was very politically active. And so I wrote this letter and it was, you know, in the whatever section. And I was just like, why are we going to invade Iraq again? This is insane. Let's just wait for the U.N., And if we get a coalition of many, many countries who say, this is definitely a problem we have to address, then we can do it then. But let's not just go in unilaterally. Yeah, very simple, dumb, you know, little couple paragraph thing. And the next week, I get a knock on my door. And it's my mailman. And I'm like, what's up? And he hands me a box. And he says, I've got more. And I don't remember how many boxes there were. But there were boxes of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hate mail.
0: Whoa. Because I
1: wrote that letter. Yeah. Yeah. To my door. So someone at the dispatcher, wherever, I don't know, found my address. And they were nasty and evil and crazy. And no one put their name or email or phone number or address so we can have a discussion, of course. They just came at me like a ton of bricks. And my daughter had just been born. And I was just thinking, like, what am I doing? I've I've got to be a protector and a provider in this situation and putting myself on the front line and putting my family on the front line at the same time, right? right and then i began to think like am i changing minds am i making progress on the things that concern my era my time and so i took a step back for a while and that's when i began deep research into sustainability and understanding the umbrella of sustainability and understanding that when we speak of sustainability what we speak of is a collective and we speak of something where you can house within the sustainability The very real and very important concerns of every human of everyday life, food scarcity, security, housing, equality, those things have to be addressed in order to have sustainability, right? Mm -hmm. So that gave me this idea that, okay, if I change my approach, if I come at this from a, a set of common current circumstances, shared human concern and then lead towards activism and change, I can make progress that way. Whereas I can't really make progress if I'm just writing a letter or yelling in someone's face telling them they're wrong.
0: And it's interesting that that all happened, you know, sort of pre-internet, you know, before, I mean, it's not pre-internet, but you know, pre-social media.
1: It was called the internet, but it was like, you know, go down that hole later. You know, that's really where my work shifted into landscape, where I decided that my area of concern was environment. Because I grew up in nature, and I wanted my daughter to experience nature in the way that I had.
0: And when, was the, when did you make that decision to go? Because you, your interest in what, you ta- what, that, what sparked this was a letter about the second Iraq- uh, war with Iraq. 2003. But you chose environmentalism as the place to plant your flag. And I'm going to say currently, because I have a feeling you're not, yeah. <laughs> not going to sit yeah. still.
1: <laughs> you know, it's, fair point. Fair point. That's correct. And that led me to begin, so I was making these landscape paintings because I decided I'm going to start to talk about the environment. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to celebrate and paint a vision of what I love about the environment and what's valuable to me. Mm -hmm. And while I was doing that, I was researching environmentalism, sustainability, you know, all these issues, deep research to make myself knowledgeable so I could be a painter of my time. And in doing so, that's when I began to bridge disciplines. That's when I be- got the bravery, if you will, to go and meet people who didn't want to meet with me and learn about things that I was incredibly ignorant about, right? Mm-hmm. To meet scientists, to meet environmentalists, to meet policy people, and to go and learn from them, even though it meant that I had to be for sure the dumbest person in the room and that the way I think about things was certainly not the way they thought about things, etc. But learning that gave me this really deep reverence for those cross-discipline relationships. Mm -hmm. And it really fed me. That led me through sustainability to the current project that I'm in now. And in those early days of doing those hyper-realistic landscapes, which were very successful, I was was selling them like hotcakes, they were very successful. I kind of got one more step into the big change into the abstract paintings, which is that, you know, I look at all these things that relate to sustainability that we talked about that are in there, you know. And I think about. In fact, you you had a podcast that was um, anti-racism just recently, right? And you mm-hmm.
0: had Dean Mitchell, Mario Robinson,
1: Ashanti Branch. It was really life affirming to listen mm-hmm. to those artists, and and I really appreciate the labor that they the unpaid labor that they are putting into education for movement and Black Lives Matter and what they're doing for artists. And I think that that's something that when I began to do this breaching out bridging of disciplines, rather, is that. That's when I began to understand that, you know, it's not merely me in the studio that I need to reach out and make space for other voices and other disciplines and other people. Mm -hmm. And that was really like, that's the first time I realized that I had that capacity, power, and I guess a resource that I didn't feel like I had. And Mm
0: -hmm. that's when I realized I really did have it. I think a lot of artists are thinking, I paint, what good is it with everything going on with, with All the chaos in the world right now that's so overwhelming. It's so kind of depressing where like 2020 has just been a crap year. It's July 1st right now as we're, we're recording this, but are we done yet? (laughs) Like, can we just like (laughs) go to December and like start over again? But especially this year, I know that there's a lot of artists who are feeling like, what's the point to what I do? When there is all this pain and all this, all these things happening, what do you think is the role of an artist? There's what you've done, which is sort of like saying, okay, I'm going to educate myself. I am going to like really involve myself in this and go in deep and make my art about that. And then there's artists who aren't going to paint overtly political things, but they're still like asking, what are we doing?
1: Yeah. Can you speak yeah. to that? No, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Can you solve the, oh, you know, can you, what's the meaning oh, of life, yeah, John?
1: Sure. Yeah, I can solve that. Yeah. Let me just, um, let me get to the bottom of this crackerjack box and see, you know, <laughs> what the answer is. So here's the thing I want anyone to take away with and, and also feel free to email me or message me on Instagram and tell me I'm wrong. Cause I mean, I, I love a good discussion and a good battle um, as Carrie James Marshall can attest to. But right now, the idea that right now, this second, you have to solve everything is, is wrong. We didn't get here in a minute. We didn't get here in a decade. We got here through thousands of years, and in this country, 400 years, very specifically to where we are now. Mm -hmm. I want every artist, painter, person, creative person out there to understand that although we have terrific insecurities, I mean, terrific insecurities, the idea that we're going to make something and we're going to put it out there and go like, I made this thing, I don't know how I feel about it, and it's in public. Anybody can tell me what you think. It's... It's terrifying. Yeah. Know, and it's terrifying every time. Like I never get used to it. I'm always like, oh, oh, oh. I always have to have time by myself before an opening because I'm just terrified, you know?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then afterwards, it's like a three day sleep. I'm like, oh. so the thing is, is that even though we have these terrific insecurities, you have something that we lost in this world. You have what we used to do all the time, which is that you have the ability to approach problem solving in a way that we need now, a year from now, 10 years from now, and 20 years from now. And what we've done is we have separated ourselves. And this is not just us. This happened in the sciences and other places. But we separated ourselves into our specialized little unit of creative people doing art. And we created this little bubble where we talk to each other. And we're like, I can do this and do that. And I do this. And you talk to that. And, than and what I want to tell everyone out there is that your voice will be welcome in any arena. It will be welcome. They may disagree with you but it will be welcome and you can do things that you can't even imagine just by being in the room so when you're in the studio that's you time do that because you need to do that if you don't do that you're going to go insane that's why we do it right
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or
1: maybe i'm speaking i think Mm -mm. i'm speaking for all artists so the difficult thing is in realizing that we don't have to be that painter person that ceramicist person that sculptor person in a room with other people we just have to be us That creative vision, that spatial thinking is so needed in these rooms. And I'll I'll give you an example. Is that cool? Yes, please. Okay. Mm -hmm. So my current project, right? And by current 10 years, we've been working on this is I moved to Ohio, which I didn't know was a state, but it is. So I moved to Ohio and I took this job, this teaching job, and I'm here and it's coal country and it's Appalachian. It's a small town. It's a real different existence, but it's got great people and it's got this kind of ex hippie commune vibe to it. And so, I get with these people who are teaching me about the environment of, of, you know, Appalachia in the area, and they take me to these streams, and these streams are terrible, and they smell and they're orange,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and there's nothing living in them. And they're like, this is acid mine drainage, and it's because, basically, we didn't have a clean water Act until 1972, and so all these old coal mines didn't seal up or do anything else, and all the water got in, and it leaches all these terrible acids and metals out. And, and now kills
0: it's everything. Everything. Yeah. E-O-A. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it's for miles, right? Um, yeah. No, this is not like, oh, look at that puddle. This is miles and miles and mm-hmm. it decimates fish populations and it separates habitats and everything. It's a really big problem. We have methods to clean it up, but those methods involve a lot of money and cleaning it up so that it generates a lot of waste as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, wow, what are these heavy metals? And they go, it's iron oxide. And I'm like, well, lucky I'm a painter. We paint with iron oxides all the time. Mm-hmm. Can I take this? And can I take it back to my studio and make paints out of it? And they're like, we don't know. And I'm like, this will be fun. So I take a scoop of orange sludge, really smells, back to the studio, play with it. Not much happens. A year later, on the soccer field where my daughter's playing, kicking the boys' asses. Basically, this mother comes up to me and says, well, you're an artist. And I'm like, guilty. And she says, I'm working on my PhD in chemistry. And my professor needs an artist's help. Would you have coffee with him? And I'm like, I happen to like coffee. And I am an artist. I say yes. And so we go have coffee and he's like, so we got this acid mine drainage problem." And I go, I got a jar at my studio. And he's like, yeah, well, I'm trying to figure out a way to make pigments out of it. So we can sell the pigments to pay for the cleanup of the streams. Can you help me? And I was like, I'm in, yo, I'm in now. That sounds good. But what you have to understand is he's a civil engineer. Mm -hmm. He works with teams of grad students and people who like have masters and PhDs and they know all this stuff. I don't even, I don't know how chemistry works. I don't know. You have numbers and stuff. And ex- I don't know how that works. I can tell but you. you don't need to. Exactly. So over this 10 years, there's been a lot of situations where I'm in a room and I am for sure the dumbest person in the room. And they're all sitting around talking about, what if we did this with the plant and did this? And my brain, because of artist, creative, spatial thinking, will go, hey, guys, what if we took this and put it over here and drop that and then put solar here instead of going on the grid? And the room will get quiet for a second.
0: While well, everybody is
1: like... Yeah, yeah, and half the time they'll go like, "Okay, wait, that can't work because chemistry." But mm-hmm. the other half of the time, they're like, "Oh, yeah, we could do that. Mm-hmm. Can we do that? Yeah, we can do that? Yeah, you know." And so that's now I'm trying to apply that to all different situations, and I'm actually getting invited by corporations to come to like corporate things and do talks about creative problem solving for sustainability. And I'm talking to corporate people, going, "Hey, think about this and redo your supply chain this way, and and stop." you know, truncating your people's ideas and, th- and it's just, look at, you see me on this video. I'm just, I'm like a garden gnome. Someone left on the side of the road. <laughs> I mean, all you artists out there are smarter than I am. I guarantee. And now after 10 years of work and no one believing in us and all this failure and everything else last year, we, we, the Ohio department of natural resources got on board and we got a $3.5 million grant from the federal government to build a full scale plant that can treat the worst acid mine seep in all of Ohio.
0: Last year? Yeah, last year. This yeah. government? Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's a holdover from the other government, as you know. But it's a program that still exists. So we got $3.5 million from there. Uh, we've got other awards from other places. We're going after another $4.5 million. And now we have this massive team of, like, civil engineers and Department of Natural Resources people and Fish and Wildlife people and wetland people and, you know, rural action and their environment. And all these people now are this big team, and we are going to build this plant that treats over a million gallons of pollution a day. It will produce over 6,000 pounds of sustainably sourced iron oxide pigments every day for generations to come and it will clean up over 7 miles of stream.
0: That's amazing. The reason that we're talking is because John and I started talking and and I was telling him that I'm I am indeed back in Argentina. Days before our plane left to come here, though, I went to go visit my friend in Oregon, and on my way to her house, I stopped by Gamblin' <laughs> and uh, got to talk to the folks over there. And they took me into their back room where they do all of their testing, and they, you know, like make sure everything is that the quality is good and that it's the light fastness and and all of that that they make sure everything's fine and dandy, not quite the word I was looking for. But they were testing your stuff. They were testing your your pigments. That is why we're talking today. <laughs> oh, because in the back of my head for the last like, I'm like, Okay, yep, check. Like, I have these like little like notes to myself or whatever, like, uh, it's coming. I'm gonna get in touch with that guy. I'm
1: so happy to hear that. They're great people. I actually, when I was in Northwestern, I had to make money to go to school, and I worked in an art supply store, and I met with Robert Gamblin very frequently. He would come out. Really? Um, this is when first, yeah, this is when he was first starting out. And then I got picked by the company to go and do the national trade material shows, and I would see Robert there as well and everything else. But then I didn't see him for a long time. And then like maybe five years ago, it's really hard to remember, um, mm-hmm. but five years ago, I took my daughter out west because I wanted her to see all the places along the West Coast that I like, and you know them. And we were in Portland. And so literally we had, you know, we had finally found some recent success in the project, um, just in our little lab scale stuff, right? And so I said, why don't you guys go look at the science museum? I'm gonna go down the road. And down just a mile down the road from the Science Museum in Portland is the, you know the factory? Yeah. And so I walked in the factory and I was like, hey, I'm cleaning up pollution and I'd like to talk to somebody about, you know, paint and stuff like that. And you know, no appointment. And the receptionist was like, yeah, if you don't have an appointment, no one can see you. I'm sorry. You know? And I was like, yeah, so it's a pretty cool project and you should, I'd like to talk to somebody. And she was like, no, no one can see you. You don't have an appointment. We're very busy, whatever else. And I was like, so I'm really going to need to see some. And so basically what happened is finally, she's like, well, she's on the phone behind the desk. And then she goes, okay, so you have to wait right here. But Scott Jalotli, our production manager, he can see you for like two minutes, but you can only meet here. And Scott comes out and I left three and a half hours later with <laughs> with him to test out.
0: <laughs> it does not, that's, a, that's fantastic. I love it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they, they have been, I got to tell you, I am such a gambling fan. I was a gambling fan before, but I am such a gambling fan because man, they have done light, fast testing and gr- they have helped us. They are one of the key reasons that we got this money from the government, this multi-million dollar grant. Because we were able to say, look, here's a wonderful company that has tested it, is distributed it, and believes in it, and therefore it's viable. And that is what that's what tipped us.
0: Love it. I love it. That is so great.
1: Plug, you can go now to any of your local art retailers and whatever else, and you can order a set of our reclaimed colors which are all made from iron oxides solely produced from cleaning up this acid mine drainage. And it comes in sustainable packaging with a little sustainable panel in it. And a portion of proceeds, of course, of course, go to cleaning up the streams further.
0: Gamblin has been a longtime friend and supporter of the Savvy Painter podcast, and they want to give you a special gift. Now that you've heard the story of how John Sabrow and Gamblin began their collaboration, you might be curious to try out the reclaimed earth colors yourself. All Gamblin products are handcrafted in small batches in Portland, Oregon, and the reclaimed earth colors are no exception. And when you buy the set, the tubes are nestled in a free, primed painting panel, which is also made in Oregon. So here's the deal, if you are one of the first 50 artists to purchase the reclaimed earth set, or purchase 3 individual reclaimed earth colors through the Gamblin Factory Store – that's at gamblinstore.com – you'll get a free 37 milliliter tube of Portland Warm Grey. All you have to do is go to GamblinStore.com and enter the promo code SAVVY2020. Now remember, SAVVY is spelled with two V's, okay? So that's S-A-V-V-Y 2020. That's the promo code that you're going to enter at checkout. This offer is limited to the first 50 artists who purchase the reclaimed earth set or three individual reclaimed earth colors at GamblinStore.com. That's how you're going to get your free 37 milliliter tube of Portland Warm Grey, and you'll mix some gorgeous colors with that combination. I'll put a link to their store and the promo code in the show notes for this episode at SavvyPainter.com, so that way if you're driving or you can't write that down, no worries, I've got you covered.
1: Ask me that question but this is what artists can do yeah and and whether it's a city council meeting or it's um, voting or it's going to a protest or it's going to an evening to learn about something we need artists to go we need artists in all of these situations government city you name it you're not going to solve the problem necessarily by yourself you're not going to be the hero of the moment necessarily but when you hear that one part where you have that special thinking that no one else has we need you in there now that is something you can do now
0: Yes, yes, yes. And you know, like, here's the here's the other thing, like listening to you tell this whole story that is just that I love. We'll start from the beginning. Here you have this kid who's getting like, he's getting into all sorts of trouble. He's not going to school. He's like the, by all stereotypes, we shouldn't be having this conversation right now. But you have this sense of curiosity, right? And you have this like, you have this drive inside of you. And people think that they need some permission to do something great and to do something amazing and to be somebody who pushes things over who who helps us reach the tipping point. And it's really like all of our voices, all of us that kind of like, you know, like pushing the rock up the hill that we're all just like, a little strength to to do that. And following your curiosity and taking those deep dives and putting yourself out there and saying like, yeah, who am I? I'm an artist, but I'm going to go meet all these scientists. I'm the dumbest person in the room. But you have to allow yourself to be the dumbest person in the room so that you can connect the dots that other people would not connect without the artists there in the room. Like Art Center College of Design, where I went to school, they always have these programs where they're working back and forth between... uh, JPL is in Pasadena as well. And they're always like doing these kind of like, putting the the artists and the scientists together just to see what happens. Like, we don't know what's going to happen, but let's put everybody in a room and find out what we can do. And that is like kind of the power of of being an artist and that's like what you're talking about is just so exciting to me and like now we're both all riled up or like yeah (laughs) you know but
1: the work that needs to be done now for in anti-racism this is you know from your podcast this is the same kind of thing you don't you don't always need to go into a room and be the person who's going to teach people how to paint right And, and you can be the person in the room who doesn't understand the complexities of racism in this country of systemic racism of your own role in that of your own culpability in that you don't have you can be the dumbest person in the room Mm -hmm. and and i can tell you from personal experience i have been so blessed to have many many people who have accepted the fact that i didn't know that much and have helped me with it yeah so many people who've done that labor from the time i was very young until very until constantly and it will it will never be done and After a while, after the first couple of hits of getting over that awkwardness and that real vulnerability and that real insecurity, it becomes something that is easier and easier, and it's so personally rewarding, I cannot tell you.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. The other thing that I think is really important about this conversation that we had is that you had no idea where that where any of this was gonna go or if any of it was even gonna work. Like I'm sure when you like picked up that sludge out of the stream, you had no concept that ten years later this is where you know, like this is where you would be. Not at all. Yeah. And so it's like just take the best next step and figure it out as you go along. You don't have to have the crystal ball that tells you how this is all going to work out. And if that was the perfectly right step, it doesn't matter. You moved forward.
1: That I think is, I think that's really well phrased entries. And I think that that is the key. I'm just dumb enough not to get completely tripped up with those things. So I continue going. (laughs) Basically, like, you're right. I mean, I put the sludge out. I was like, this will be cool. And it didn't turn out cool. And then we went through years and years and years of like, oh, gosh, this will never be pigment. This is the worst. We can't make pigment. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Failure after failure after failure. And there were I, I'd like to tell you that it was somehow a magical journey, but it was not magical. It was work. Mm-hmm. And there were many, many, many times, many times when we're out of these seeps, we're sitting in the car after another day of failure, and we're just literally, my, my, Guy Riefler is the, is the civil engineer who's created the process, right? We're sitting in the car, after having not gotten funded and not gotten this. And the, and today's failure was another failure. And we're looking at each other. And we've so often said, is it time to give it up? And you have to ask that question rather honestly, but the answer also has to be honest. And so if there's one more possibility, it might work, you've got to try that one more thing. And that's where we ended up where we are now. Mm-hmm. It, it's not because everything went great. It's not because there's a magic bullet. It's just absolutely putting yourself in those situations and being like, okay, you know? Yeah. Okay. And yeah. then the funny thing about it is that that evolution came from me being a painter in a studio saying, I know what pigments are, I have made my paints before, I will try to do my very, very small, small thing in my studio and make my little tiny thing out of this little sludge, right? Right. This is going to happen. I want to warn your listeners that when you take these steps, responsibility is going to come your way. And what happens is, is when you have many successes or even a certain universe declared quantity of failures in your bag... <laughs> you get to a point where other people are going to start to ask you to speak about bigger things. So people are like, can you come and give a talk? And I'm like, yeah. So I come and give a talk. And I'm like, this is iron oxide and it's been used in cave paintings. And this is my speaking voice. And then this is what happens with, and all this stuff. And they're like, well, could you talk about how art and science as a modality could, whatever. And I'm like, Oh, it's big. Oh, it's a big question. Oh my God. It's a big question. I'm like, Oh, guy is a really zen master and ha- and so eventually you realize that people are asking you to talk not because they necessarily only want to hear about your little studio practice they're asking you because they want to hear you talk from a position that they believe that you somehow have this understanding of where you can talk about a new mode of addressing current issues through art and science collaborations Mm-hmm. And then you suddenly have to be responsible for that. So that means I have to get smarter and I've got to start to read things and interview people and again, be the dumbest person in the room. Be like, what about this? What about this? Is this working? And then go give a talk about it where I'm not going to be the expert or mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to be only able to talk about my authentic experiences and hopes and dreams and things I studied. And that's it. And you know what? It turns out that's enough. It's more than don't enough. Don't worry if you're the expert on it. And as you pointed out, don't worry if you have a crystal ball. Get in there. Be vulnerable. Be honest about it. Oh, it's so good. It's the the dialogue you get from people is so good, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. And just walking in, like, I, I, <laughs> I'm i going to get a t-shirt now. It just says, I'm the dumbest person in the room. Um <laughs> We're both being a little bit self-deprecating and, and all of that. But seeing yourself as the, the dumbest person in the room is not an insult. It gives you the freedom to lay off the idea that you have to be an expert and have the answers and go at it hard with curiosity and with a sense of discovery rather than I have the answer. Because the minute you say you have the answer, you blind yourself. And that's true in what we're talking about now. That's true when you're standing in, in front of a canvas. If you think you already know what your canvas is going to look like before you pick up your paintbrush, that painting's dead.
1: That's so true, right? Oh. My God. <laughs> oh, so dead. So dead. And I think it would be brilliant. I think it would be brilliant if we all if artists were involved in all these different things and, and brought that voice to it, and I just yes. think that you know and I'm listening to again to your, to your guest speakers you know to Ashanti branch and and all the others and and hearing them you know speak the truths of what makes artists I think different and important at this time I don't remember who this said it, so my apologies but you know there's this moment where this this thing that what you and I are talking about now was sort of came out then which is that you you know, not only do you now have this responsibility to talk about and report back your findings from trying to be a creative person in different environments and everything else, but now you have the responsibility of making space for others and of empowering other voices. And that might sound like labor, but it is absolutely a privilege and it is absolutely a joy. It is the biggest joy in life is to be able to say, I have an opportunity here to go speak, to go do a workshop, to go do a thing, to give a scholarship, whatever it is, to have a show and invite artists in there, to jury, whatever the opportunity that you get is, because you've done all this work, um, because you've failed enough at mm-hmm. trying to put yourself into the circumstances, you get this opportunity to say, these are voices that need to be heard, that mm-hmm. I value, and they aren't getting heard, and they need to be heard. And that can be a vast spectrum, of course, of what it is. The privilege that comes with the responsibility is something that you can't tell people how fulfilling that is for life, what that means. The best thing about the art world is not the art for crying out loud. The best thing about the art world is the people, mm. you know, amazing. And so we need more of those voices everywhere to bring more artist voices and there more creative voices in there. And that is how we are going to shift the dialogue from the fear mongering self-isolationist fear center, right? The fear Mm -hmm. of change and the fear of loss and the fear of someone taking something from you because you share and whatever else. We change that to a center of gratitude and generosity. And I think we need artists more than ever to put that forward. I think that's our role.
0: Yeah, 100%. It's like the Tony Morris quote that, you know, now is the time when when we need the artists. Now is the time to expand, not contract. She didn't say that part, but... Yeah. I feel you. Yeah. <laughs> For real. John, thank you so much. This yeah. could be like another like five-hour conversation easily. but
1: <laughs> in, in a year or so, uh, have me back on and I'll tell you how the plant building is going and whether the wetland that we're building that's going to be an outdoor sculpture park and educational center will get done that I'm in charge of, and whether our Japan um, fishing wall tsunami community mural gets done too. There'll be, there's a lot of things going on.
0: How, wait, 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 wait. Okay, so, so, yeah. all right, a year from now. So uh, July yeah. 1st, 2021, we have a date. So I'll kind of end this with with just kind of handing the mic to you um, and asking the questions or anything that I haven't asked you that I should have asked you or that you want to say.
1: Okay, yeah, well. <laughs> I talk- oh, God, John's, I, I John's I, got I, the I, mic. I totally just I- – and I probably ruined this whole podcast. It's like, blah, 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 blah. John talks a lot. I talk a lot. I'm just excited about everything. I will say that this is another plug. So I'm sorry for this. But I felt that there needed to be more artists involved in our project in a broader spectrum. We have a lot of student teams involved, graduate students, art students, engineering students, and things like that. We try to bring in um, local schools, elementary kids, high school kids, whoever we can to come in and work on the project as well. We live in Appalachia, and we live in one of the poorest counties in the country. And there's not a lot of opportunity, and most of the students I deal with are not from a kind of monetary support system that they can take advantage of some of the things that we really need to do. So I set up a new fund uh, with the university's help here at the university, which is called the Johnson Fund for Art and Innovation. And the whole point is to basically like you know, get money so that we can fund students to go with us to New York to meet with you know people about this, to work with us hands-on in the field, doing the wetland, all that kind of stuff. Because we're building the plant and we're building it in an area where we're going to affect some wetland So according to law, we have to have a, a wetland mitigation zone. And this is another case, as to our point earlier, where I'm sitting in a room and everybody's like, well, here's where it goes. And I'm like, can we make it anything we want? And they're like, as long as it follows the rules. And I'm like, can we put sculptures in it? <laughs> and they're like, yeah. And I'm like, can we put a walkway above the wetland so you can walk all the way around it? And and they're like, yeah. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I go back and I do this. I'm like, here's what it's going to look like. And I had a team of students this last semester um, were great. And they designed this wetland that is based off of rice terraces. And it's like this huge leaf that when you drone shoot it, it's actually one big leaf and it has these things and all that stuff. And then we're going to use um, recycled plastic to create this walkway that goes through it and all this stuff. And so the Johnson Braugh Fund for Art and Innovation is going to work to fund artists who can produce sculptures that we'll put in there that will be affected every season by the floodwaters that come up and down. So the sculptures will be activated by the floodwaters. Boom! Oh, yeah. So I got a lot of work ahead of me, but it's pretty cool. I love my students. I love all the people involved in the project, really amazing people. And I can't encourage every artist enough to insert themselves into culture anywhere they can.
0: John, thank you so much. Seriously.
1: No, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Next year.
0: Yep, we've got a date. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode with John Sorrell as much as I did. You can see examples of John's work in the show notes for this episode at SavvyPainter.com. Just click on the podcast tab. You'll find show notes for this episode as well as examples of John's work and links to connect with him. Also, there's several opportunities for Savvy Painter listeners I want you to check out while you're at SavvyPainter.com. If you are listening to this podcast as it comes out, that's on Thursday, November 19th, 2020. There are two great deals for you that you should take advantage of right away. First, as you've already heard, Gamblin is giving away a tube of Portland Grey Warm with a purchase of reclaimed earth colors. So you'll find the link to gamblinstore.com and the promo code, which is SAVVY2020, in the show notes for this episode. So if you're not sure about the spelling or you just want to be able to click on the link without remembering it, that's where you get it. Second, this is super exciting, you guys. I'm doing my Black Friday Cyber Monday sale a little bit early for the next 36 hours, you can get my online course, Mindset Mastery, for 70% off. It's a pretty insane discount, and it's only available for the next 36 hours. So if you've been interested in Mindset Mastery, now's your chance to grab it. If you've been loving my Office Hours episodes, where we talk about things like beating perfectionism, getting more time in the studio, silencing your inner critic, you will love Mindset Mastery. Plus, if you take advantage of this special deal, you will get access to the Q&A Vault where you can watch 14 bonus videos of recorded coaching calls where I help other artists strengthen their creative mindset and become confident in the studio again. So if you're interested in that deal, again, it's 70% off. You have 36 hours to take advantage of it and you can find the links to get more information and to enroll on that at SavvyPainter.com. So those are two deals that you should take advantage of right now because they're super limited and will be gone fast. And then finally, the last thing that I want to let you know about, I am super, super excited about this one as well, I've been wanting to do this again for a long, long time, so I've been working with some of the guests on the podcast to bring you exclusive workshops, and I have two coming up. Registration for both of those starts today, and you'll find all the information for this, again, on the website SavvyPainter.com. If you've ever been curious about the Munsell system of color, Artist Lucy Callian will be teaching a three-day workshop starting on December 7th. And then in January, Dean Fisher will be teaching a six-week workshop on painting still lifes. Dean has a very unique approach to still life painting, and I am super, super excited to work with him again and to bring you this hands-on experience with the artist Dean Fisher. Both workshops are open for enrollment now. You can find all the details and the links to register at SavvyPainter.com. So until the next time, this is anne Wood with the Savvy Painter Podcast. Take care, everyone. Wear your masks, please. I'm telling you from experience, you don't want to get COVID. Be safe. Be healthy. Paint lots.